We're looking in chapter 5 of the Confession this morning, having looked at chapter 4 last week. I want to remind you that these chapters in the Confession are not just totally isolated thoughts that have no connection to the other chapters, like, oh, I guess we'll talk about providence now because I don't know what else to talk about, and we're just coming off creation, there's no connection between the two. But the, the authors of the Confession were very intentional in how they were building upon the first things. First things being, how can we know God at all? Scripture. Okay, then what is God like? Chapter 2. And then how He interacts with creation begins in chapter 3. And we saw in chapter 3, paragraph 1, God hath decreed in Himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever come to pass. And what follows in chapters 4 and 5 is the teasing out of that. So, we read last week from the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 14, how doth God execute His decrees? And the answer is God executeth His decrees in the works of creation and providence according to His infallible knowledge and the free and immutable counsel of His own will. And we've seen this. We, we see this in passages like Colossians 1, 16-17. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him. You have creation. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. You have providence. Creation and providence are held together very often in Scripture. And so we can think of it in this way. The, de- the decree is... Uh, Some have described it as a blueprint that God writes before time begins. And then how does he carry out the designs of this blueprint? Well, he creates and then he maintains what is created. Now, for chapter 5 on God's providence, there are seven paragraphs. And I think Sam Waldron helpfully lays out the structure of the chapter Paragraph 1 is the doctrine stated. And then paragraphs 2 through 7 all kind of deal with further explanation that may be needed or objections that may be needed to address. But that's how the paragraph goes. Chapter 1 is this is what God's providence is. Chapters 2 through 7 is any further explanation that needs to be given. So, for example, in paragraph 2, basically, if we're going to boil this down to a single sentence... There's a denial of the idea of luck, the idea of random chance occurrence. Paragraph 3 is a clarification that God is not bound to only use means. We, we know He uses us as means to carry out His will. He uses prayer to, as a means to carry out His will, but miracles are Him out, acting outside of those means and acting directly. Paragraph 4 is an affirm, affirmation of God's sovereignty over sin but denying that he's the author of sin. Paragraph 5 is an affirmation of God using sin for the good of his people. Paragraph 6 is an affirmation of God using sin for the judgment of the wicked. And paragraph 7 is an affirmation of God's providence being particularly for the good of the church. So, let's begin. Paragraph 1 of chapter 5. God, the good creator of all things, in His infinite power and wisdom doth uphold, 
direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and all things from the greatest even to the least by His most wise and holy providence to the end for which they were created according unto His infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of His own will to the praise of the glory of His wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. And to just get at the idea that this is the doctrine stated, uh, Waldron again really itemizes this paragraph. You see the author of providence is the good creator. The foundation of providence is his infinite power and wisdom. The essence of providence is his upholding, directing, disposing, and governing. You see the object of his providence, all creatures and things from the greatest even to the least, all things. You see the nature of his providence by his most wise and holy providence. The compatibility, the com- the compatibility with a P, not a B. The compatibility of providence to the end for which we were created. The determining cause of providence according unto his infallible knowledge in the free and immutable counsel of his own will and the goal of providence to the praise of his glory. So, um, to back up to the beginning of the paragraph, you're seeing again a connection between creation and providence. The, the two cannot be separated. God's providence is a continuing responsibility of His by virtue of His creation. Um, just for another text that puts these things together, Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world, creation, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power, providence. Again, creation and providence. He creates and He upholds all things, keeping all things together by the word of His power. For just to spend a little bit of time in Scripture here, I want you to turn to Job 38. And you see these things brought together again. God's... uh, office as creator and him being the one who upholds things in providence. Job 38. So at the beginning of Job 38, you have the Lord uh, coming on to address Job. Dress for action like a man in verse 3. I will question you and you make it known to me. Starting in verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? The essential question he's asking is, are you the creator or am I the creator? And the obvious answer is, God is the creator. God is the one who created all these things. He's the one who established all these things. Then you come to the end of the chapter. Well, before we get to the end, you look at verses 12 through 15, and you begin to see providence. Have you commanded the morning since your days began, and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. The idea of, do you determine when the dawn happens? 
every day. I do in my providence. The end of the chapter, starting in verse 39. This is so emphasizing the meticulous providence of God. How detailed and granular this gets. Can you hunt the prey for the lion? Or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its, young's, when its young cry out to God? Man, when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food. See how, how detailed God's providence is. The language here is that God provides food for the lions. They're hunting, but it's God who, who feeds them. Who provides for the ravens? Well, the implication is God does. Job, you don't. Job, you don't provide for the ravens. I do. And this is to the degree of God's providence. Now, someone might object, well, that's just Old Testament poetry. That doesn't actually mean that God provides for all the birds, right? And of course, you may already be thinking of Matthew 6 where Jesus says just that. We can look at Jesus' words in Matthew 6, which is not Old Testament poetry. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And here you're already getting to the application of studying God's providence. Should reduce our anxiety. Because we're not at the mercy of blind random chance. We're not at the mercy of a malevolent God. We're depending on a good God. Who, who creates and sustains all things and loves His people. And this is interesting. One of the additions of the Baptists to the language of the Presbyterians is the qualifier good creator. Um, that word good was added by the Baptists. Not that the Presbyterians don't believe God is good. <laughs> but that the Baptists wanted to particularly emphasize that and really draw this out. That this is, this is why God's providence is so rich. Because He's good we can trust Him. So with that, when we're affirming God's meticulous providence, we're affirming against an atheistic, materialistic world where everything is random chance. We're affirming against a Creator that uh, winds up the clock and lets it go and then may observe out of curiosity or may not observe at all, which is where you get with deism. It's not that he has partial control and falls asleep at the wheel sometimes, but then does the best he can with the wreck that happens after that. Which, sometimes, by the way, evangelicals talk, that's the, that's the implication. God's just as surprised that this happened as you are, some try to say in comforting people. But that's not a comfort. That's a terrifying prospect. The idea that this tragedy happens, and it happened because God fell asleep at the wheel upstairs, and... That's supposed to comfort me? 
It's not good. And it's not that everything happens is just the best God could do given the kind of world he wanted to create, which is the, Molin- the Molinus perspective. All of these per- perspectives share that they cannot provide you with hope that there is a purpose for all that happens. It's only what's described in our confession, which we believe summarizes the Word of God, that can provide you hope. That everything that happens, happens for a purpose, and a purpose of a good God, a good Creator. And I think that's the only real hope we can have with all the difficulties we face in this life. There is no blind, pitiless indifference, which were Dawkins' words when describing what he thinks the universe is really like. There are no gods. There's nothing in the sky. Nothing to look to. Blind, pitiless indifference. There's no hope in that. There's really no reason to be joyful in that. All that happens is just happening. It's just chemical reactions. There's no purpose to it. There's nothing good about it. It's not a world started by an all-powerful God and then just left it go. It's not a work of a God who's doing the best he can but sometimes fails. And it's not a God beholden to a standard outside of himself for the kind of world he wants to make. Which means getting again to the hope that we have is that there is no such thing as purposeless suffering. So, do any passages come to your mind just to affirm or that we might draw this idea out from that we haven't already talked about. Any Bible passages that come to mind? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You see his status as creator. You see his work in providence. And you see even all things were created through him and for him, which is the foundation of what all this is built on. This is what we're talking about with God's decrees and even who God is in chapter 2. So, any other passages that may come to mind about God's providence in general? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And it, yeah, and it's amazing that not only just that these things happen, but they happen for my good and for the good of God's people. Otherwise, when tragedy happens, we can despair without hope. But with what's being taught here, we do have reason for hope. We know that there's purpose behind it. Probably the biggest one that everybody knows is Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For God's people, all things work for good. Why? Because they belong to a good God whose meticulous providence governs all things. 
So, moving on, we'll see how far we get. So you already know this view of God's sovereignty, His, God, His sovereign providence, is not without objections or uh, need of further explanation. So paragraphs 2 and 3 we're going to kind of handle together because they both deal with God's use of means. Paragraph 2, although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly so that there is not anything befalls any by chance or without His providence, yet by the same providence He ordereth them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. Then paragraph 3, God in His ordinary providence maketh use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at His pleasure. So paragraph 2 is essentially saying God uses means, and paragraph 3 says He doesn't have to (laughs) in the maintenance of His creation He's obviously able and does work outside of those means. So, here you're kind of getting to one of the great difficulties for a lot of people. We're affirming God's absolute meticulous sovereignty even over what humans do, that they are decreed in eternity past. And yet, humanity is affirmed as a free creature doing what, what, what they freely want to do. And that we are affirming there is no contradiction here. And for, most, for many people, this is just unacceptable. We want to affirm if this is a mystery, I'm not saying that we can map out exactly how this works in a way that I can scientifically diagram where God's sovereign decree ends and my free will begins, or that kind of thing. But we're affirming what I think the Bible forces us to affirm, that God ordains all things whatsoever should come to pass, and yet I am freely choosing to do certain things and am responsible for what I choose to do. And part of this is because we're affirming with God there are no unknown variables. There is nothing contingent. And in order for that to be true, it can't be contingent on things that I do. This is where open theists go. Open theists say, well, we are free creatures because God doesn't know what we're going to do. God doesn't know the future. And he's just kind of saying in prophecy, I'm going to make it, I'm going to work with what you do, but I'm going to see what you do. I don't know what you're going to do. And I'm going to work it out to get to where I want to get in the end. But as we've, as we've seen before, if you remember a few, several weeks ago, we walked through Exodus 3 just as an example. Well, more than Exodus 3. Multiple chapters in Exodus to show that God is not bashful at all at claiming responsibility. I hardened Pharaoh's heart. I put him here so that I may be glorified in him. And yet, Pharaoh's not off the hook because of that, is he? No. He's still a wicked man doing what his wicked heart desires, reveling in the wickedness, and is judged for that wickedness. This is part of the tension that we're affirming both. God is sovereign over all things, and yet we are responsible for the choices that we make. Um, Just for some verses, let's look at Acts 27. 
We'll start in verse 21 of Acts 27. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me when, and not have set sail for, from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who will sail with you. And especially that phrase. God has granted you all those who will sail with you. Told beforehand all this would happen. God has already chosen who's going to sail with you. The idea these sailors, it's not like they were lifted up (laughs) and dropped on the boat. I guess I'm sailing today. No, they made free choices. They did what they wanted to do that day. And the days before. And they found themselves in making these choices where God had decreed them to be. Which is sailing this ship for Paul. Um, We've looked at this text before, but 1 Kings 22 is a really good text for us to have in mind with these things, with God's providence. So 1 Kings 22, in verse 28, you have Micaiah the prophet saying to the wicked king Ahab, If you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Hear all you peoples. The idea being, Micaiah has prophesied that if Ahab goes to battle, he will die. That's the proclamation. You see the fulfillment of this in verse 34, in what I think is kind of a cheeky statement by the author. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. We're not meant to read this and say, Well, by random, like, it's just a roll of the dice, and I, I guess the king Ahab rolled snake eyes. <laughs> Sorry about your luck. And I guess the prophet just got lucky and, and got it. No, what we're intended to see here is that God works in even the mundane details. This archer's just drawing his bow and shooting at this mass of people. And by God's providence, that arrow hits the target that he decreed it would hit and takes out the king that he had prophesied to end. And maybe in a way that we don't normally think about this, but um, Proverbs... uh, talks about in verse 9 or chapter 19 a prudent wife is from the lord house and wealth are inherited from fathers but a prudent wife is from the lord if we think about this if it if this is true a prudent wife is a gift from god the wife the woman doesn't have her mind like covered and then god takes over and puppeteers her to the man as a gift from God. (laughs) That's not how this works, right? The woman's making decisions, making free decisions, doing what she would do on any other day, but by God's decree, the two are brought together. Any thoughts or questions on this so far? Or any other verses that come to mind that might speak to these things? Must go and stand before Caesar. 
Yep. Yep. Like, yep. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and certainly if I were the one in charge, that would have been the way I would have done it. But God's ways are greater. And he chose to do things in a very different way. Um, and then just to assert again, paragraph three, I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on this. I think it's pretty obvious. God uses means. He uses our prayers to accomplish His purpose. He uses us in evangelism to accomplish His purposes. He uses us in reading the Word to uh, mortify sin in us. He uses all these means. But He's not uh, beholden to those means. And much of what we're reading in Scripture is when He decides to act outside of those means. When He acts in miraculous ways, He's acting outside of those means. He's not beholden to only use us in a natural way. He can act in supernatural ways. And this is also part of his decree and within his providence. Paragraph 4. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that his determinate counsel extendeth itself even to the first fall and all other sinful actions both of angels and men. And that not by bare permission, which also he most wisely and powerfully aboundeth, and otherwise ordereth and governeth, in a, manifest, in a manifold dispensation to his most holy ends, yet so, as the sinfulness of their acts proceedeth only from the creatures and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. Now we're dealing with an objection that, well, if God is so meticulous in his providence as to decree what is done, even by human beings, how is he not the author of sin? How is he not responsible for evil? And just to run a few verses by you again, we, we referenced Exodus already. Um, we see that, but for this purpose I raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Just to get at, we can't get away from God raised Pharaoh up, he exalted Pharaoh to his position, and he did it for a purpose. And he's using him, even in the Exodus account, hardening his heart to not let God's people go. God's hand is in this, and we can't get away from that. And we don't want to get away from that. What we want to be is careful. Um, for another example, I want to go to Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, or however you say it. <laughs> that I think really helpfully shows what we're talking about here. God using sin. I have Todd Friel's line in my head. Using sin sinlessly. Um, Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 5 through 6. So this is after Habakkuk complains about the wickedness of the Jewish people. He says, God, you need to do something about this. The Lord says, I will do something about this. He says in verses... Uh, we're going to look at 5 through 6 especially. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if, I t if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, 
that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. I am lifting up the Babylonians. I'm lifting up this wicked people to do what I have designed them to do. You come to Habakkuk's response in verses 12 through 13. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You see the problem. God, how can you use these people? I mean, we're bad. And I'm complaining to you about how bad we are. But the Babylonians, they're horrifically wicked pagans. Very violent. And you're using these people to accomplish your will. How can you involve yourself in this when the, look at, like the language is, you who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. There is a question here. How can you, being so good, use such wicked means? And yet he does. He does use these men as means. Going to chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnants of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What you get here is the Lord is going to use the Chaldeans. He's going to use the Babylonians, lift them up, use them to accomplish His decree, and they're going to be punished for the wicked they're going to do in doing this. This gets really difficult for us to parse through in our minds, which is why my encouragement to you is not (laughs) to try and parse it scientifically in your mind and to say such things are too high and wonderful for me. I cannot reach them. Because this is is why Molinism exists. Molinism exists as a system to try and answer all of our questions to our satisfaction. This is why false doctrines about who God is exist, is to try and answer what can't be answered. To get at what the mysteries that God has kept for Himself, the secret things belong to the Lord in Deuteronomy 29. What He's not revealed does not belong to us. What has He revealed? He governs all things whatsoever that come to pass. He uses wicked people who are doing wicked things to accomplish His purposes. He uses sin sinlessly. We are still free creatures responsible for what we do. Those things we affirm. I can't chart out how that interaction works out explicitly. But I affirm it. And I believe it. Verses 12-14 through kind of build on this. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God is going to do His 
will. He's going to carry out his decree. He's going to use wicked people to work out his designs. This is Luther saying the devil is God's devil. The enemy of our souls. Hates God's people, hates God, and yet can, and everything he does, he's only furthering God's designs. Most importantly in this thread is Acts 2. And I have John Piper in my head because um, he was helpful in talking about if you're struggling with this, this is the text to center yourself on. How, how God can use evil. How God can be... Uh, pro, uh, keep wanting to saying providential. <laughs> how God can meticulously govern even the evil that's in the world. Acts 2, starting in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wondrous signs, or wonders and signs, God did through him in your midst, as yourselves, you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Here we have it at the center of redemptive history. God declared, decreed, before the foundations of the earth that Jesus would be crucified. Jesus, the only truly innocent man in all of history. This is the most horrific injustice in all of history. It may be hard for us to accept that when we see such horrific things in our day, but it's true. This is the most horrific thing that ever happened in human history. A truly innocent man who never committed any sin whatsoever nailed to a cross, left to die. And yet, God is not squeamish about saying, this happened according to my decree. I decreed that this would happen. And I decreed, part of that decree is that the you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That's part of that decree that we can't get away from. So, the little bit of time we have left, with that stated, where might we go in Scripture to argue that God is not the author of sin, even with these verses that we've looked at? Where would we go to to say that God is not, I guess there's no other way to say it, the author of sin. Heather? Um, I'm thinking of yes. Yes. Right. James 1.13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. You might say, well, how does that possibly work? That God lifts up Pharaoh for his glory, and yet is not tempting him in any way? I don't know, but I believe it. And I, and I think there's, there are... I know Dalazal spends a lot of time on uh, God's providence. There's lectures on that. I didn't have time to get to them this week. I think we could dig a little bit deeper on this. But what I want to get to, I don't want to rest on, I can totally understand this. Because I don't think it is possible to totally understand this. I want to rest on, the Bible says this, and I believe it. That's where I want to rest. 
this is what the Word of God teaches, and I have to believe what the Word of God teaches, even if I can't fully understand it. Another, or do you have, yeah. Yes, yes, Genesis 50, 20. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's really good. And this gets to, again, paragraph one. The good creator is the one who's ordaining all these things. So that's just such a wonderful text. You meant it for good, or you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And especially the way you've said that, that the mind of God who decreed these things is different than the mind of the wicked people who are carrying it out against us. Caleb, do you have something? Yes. But who are you, old man, to answer back to God? I mean, it's it's shocking how little the Bible even grants us that this is a proper question. Right. Paul's saying this is not even a proper question for a creature to be asking. Right. Right. And we are absolutely hung up on that question. I don't know if it's different since the Enlightenment, but um, yeah, in my mind, that's that's the whole reason Molinism exists, is to try and meticulously answer this. Brittany. Um, back to your question about passages. Yeah. Even you talked about Genesis 22. Yeah. Um, like Ryan, yeah. Um, right before this, talked about Adam and killing his spirit and asking if he would see Ahab mm-hmm. and a lying spirit came forth. Yes. Yes. So even the same kind of passage that you're talking about. Yeah. Yes. We're seeing some examples of how this plays out. And just to I, this verse was referenced, and I think it's helpful as far as affirming God is not evil and is not ordaining things because He's evil or anything like that. First John 1.5 says, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. And so this good God who decrees all things that come to pass, using wicked people, using sin sinlessly, it's not because there's any darkness in Him. There is no darkness in him at all. And somehow, with Habakkuk's concern, this God with pure eyes that cannot even behold sin is untainted in his use of the Chaldeans. And so he's untainted when he uses wicked people to accomplish his works all the time. I don't think we can go any farther today. Are there any other comments or questions on the things we've covered so far? Yeah. It, it touches on Paul said the centurion and soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, they cannot be saved. Yeah. So it's not like, hey, you, we are going to survive, but man's responsibility, and then, like you were saying, mm-hmm. I can't scientifically reconcile that. You right. must do this to be saved, but at the same time, God had already ordained that they would be. Right. Right. And God's never surprised by, oh, that many people stayed in the ship. I was only planning on <laughs> this many. Like, no, He knows. And the decisions they make are the means by which he carries out what he has decreed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for 
Such a wonderful doctrine. As difficult as it is for our our post-enlightenment minds that want to scientifically diagram all these things and chart these things out, Lord, I pray that we would be humbled just to accept that You've revealed what we need to know. We need to believe it. Even if we can't make total and complete sense of it. You've revealed what we need to know. Lord, we thank You for it. We pray that we would grow in our love for You for it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.